What I love about Bel Air is people. There are so many people here that want to reach this city and reach this world and have a heart for it. The view of the church in the modern world now is judgmental, and what I like about Bel Air is that there's not a lot, it's just a lot of acceptance, a lot of like, you know, yeah, you have problems, yeah, you have this, but you know, we're going to come alongside you and pray for you and, you know, be there with you through this, these tough points in your life, and I really, I really like that. Well, there's always something going on where they're actually showing Christ's love to other parts of the city and other parts of the world, whether it be with Imagine LA or with mission trips or with um, many of the other collaborations they've got going on around the city, and I just uh, am so thrilled to be a part of it. What I love about Bel Air is the fact that we, we teach God's Word up here, and we do it in a way that's truthful, and we do it with so much love. It's strange that talking about what a great church Bel Air is, and as you take a look and you've seen it really is, and uh, the mixed emotions that I have as we're going on to the next chapter that God has called us. I've said before, and I always will, this was the greatest chapter in my life as far as ministry with a local congregation. I know that God, we're already getting requests from a lot of really good pastors to be the next group to come in to guide, to love, and to lead Bel Air. But as you take a look at the strength of a church, is not its ordained staff, though we got a real strong one here. It's the Holy Spirit and everyday men and women and boys and girls. And I feel so honored to be able to just Taking this, if you will, uh, good spaceship Bel Air to the next orbit, it's going to be fun to see who takes it even farther out there. So as you continue to make a place your home, you know, we journey together on this life for little periods, but we'll all gather together at the marriage feast of the Lamb, the church triumphant. What stories we will have. God bless you. It's, uh, needless to say, really difficult um, to think what are the last words that you say to a congregation. I think of uh, the last words of Socrates. I drank what? But as, <laughs> you know, as you take a, a look at this, Dr. Seuss, as he was sick, said, don't cry because it's over, but smile because it happened. This is my 541st sermon at Bel Air Presbyterian Church over the last 11 plus years, and three times that's over 1,620 services. But what what that means is you've heard the average joke 3.6 times while I'm here. I'm sure I told you of the pastor who is a young seminarian who was going to give his very first sermon, and he was so nervous, and he was going to preach on, Behold, I come in the clouds with great glory. And he stepped up on the big chancel up front, and he said, Behold, I come in total block. Couldn't think of the next word to say. So he was taught in preaching school, well, if you ever have a brain block, just start over. So he said, Behold, I come in nothing. And they're getting a little nervous, and so finally he got all excited, he said, and he made a run, and said, Behold, I come, and he stepped too far, and he fell off, and he fell into this older lady's lap in the front pew. And as he's putting her glasses back on and giving her a Bible, he said, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. She said, Son, it's all right, I should have been ready. You warned me three times. You know. <laughs> 4.6 times, the average joke, but... I was uh, thinking, you know, I have uh, been here, if you took uh, Louis Evans... Junior, who was the founding pastor, and Michael Venning, who I shared with, if you put their times together, I've been here longer. But all three of us have not been here as long as Don was here for 28 years. Speaking of um, Mike, and so God uses different people for different chapters. 
uh, Michael Venning, a South African, he went to be with the Lord, godly man, we prayed for Frida. He told me one of his, his pastor friends, his last sermon, uh, had a taxi rented out front. He got up and he just blasted people by name and got into the taxi and drove off. So, <laughs> no, we don't have that long. But as we, you think of what God is doing in our lives and you think of what Paul tells his beloved Timothy. Stay faithful, keep focused, and you'll be fruitful. He said, Timothy, stay faithful. Not successful, not famous. You stay faithful. And you do that by staying focused on Christ. Don't get caught into all the diversions of this world and all the personalities and all the neediness of the church or uh, the doomed ship of the earth heading towards destruction. Timothy, you stay focused and you do that, and God will bear a harvest. It's unstoppable. And Bel Air is what we have come together as we celebrate together. And as what the Lord is going to be doing next, we can come together and say, Wow, Lord, thank you. Staying faithful means that we are attached to the one who loved us. Staying focused means, of course, we are interacting with the world, but we're not entangled with the world and if we take the great thing about life is it comes one day at a time. Isn't that how God gives it to us? And if we live that life, He will take care of us. You got your Bible? Let's turn back over to Second uh, Timothy and to the second chapter, page nine hundred sixty-six. We looked at the first chapter last week. For any of you that are visiting, uh, and you might be new to this Christian faith thing, a little uh, background. This book didn't fall down out of heaven. It's from real people to other real people inspired by the Holy Spirit. Paul did three missionary journeys. And uh, his second missionary journey, which we have a map of here, Antioch was where the Gentiles, our church father was, not Jerusalem. And they're heading on over. He picks up Timothy at Lystra, where he finds him. Heads on up, up towards Troas. Gets the vision to go to Europe, this Greek boy. And so he goes over to Neapolis, Philippi. Heads on over to Thessaloniki. Heads on down, keep planting these churches, these pig-eating Gentiles. Goes to the intellectual capital of the ancient world, Athens. Goes to Corinth. Heads over to Ephesus. And that's where he was, remember, for three years, where he wrote 1 Timothy 2 before heading back down to Jerusalem. Well, several years later, Paul always goes back. It's because he starts something and he can go away. He's obsessed about it going. So he'll go back in his third journey. He'll take off again about 54 to 57 from Antioch, head back over to Ephesus again. This time takes a break up north to Troas, of course. You see what he's doing. Heads over to Neapolis again. He heads on back down, straight away to Corinth. Heads back up to Philippi this time, and a second time they called and asked for help. Back down to Mytilene, heads on back down. He takes the coast, and then finally he'll head back over to Jerusalem, and it's at, it's at this place where the elders come and they weep because the Holy Spirit has said, you will never see his face again. He'll be arrested in, uh, of course, Jerusalem, and he'll go to Caesarea, he'll be at Philippi, he'll be in prison there before he's sent to Rome to be executed. Because as a Roman citizen, he chose to appeal to the emperor. And so it's like anybody American can appeal to the Supreme Court. Whether they'll hear it or not, it doesn't matter. But for someone as Paul that they would listen. Look what he says over here in this... Second chapter, verse 1, page 966. You then, my child, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me through many witnesses, entrust to 
faithful people who will be able to teach others well. Not famous people, not rich people, not failed people, not frumpy people. None of those categories fit. Faithful people. Share in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Now, he's remember, he's in a hole in the ground in Roman prison. It is cold. He is chained. The Praetorian Guard, which was like the special forces for Caesar, are overseeing him because he's such a dangerous criminal, they think. And he's thinking, he's watching how this soldier reports and who he tries to please is not anybody on the cell block. It's his commanding officer. So look what he says, verse 4. No one serving in the army gets entangled in everyday affairs. The soldier's aim is to please the enlisting officer. In other words, these guys aren't buying condos in Rome or investing in grain or wine, these soldiers. Paul's not saying don't be a part of the world. You can't help a relationship you're not in. You hear me say that endlessly. But you can't have a relationship you're stuck in. Don't get entangled in the world. Be in the world, but he's saying remember who you serve for. The third illustration is the farmer who does the work who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in all things. Remember he said, Timothy, there are tough times coming. There are tough times coming. So you, as a good soldier, as a good athlete, as a good farmer, in the tough times, you stay faithful. I've told you before, the hardest years actually to be alive, according to social psychologists, is between the ages of 4 and 95. (laughs) Other than that, life is easy. It's always tough and there's something new that is out there. And he's telling Paul, he sent, Paul's telling Timothy, hang in there. Those things that you've heard in the presence of others and trust to others. And it's interesting that there are faithful men and there are faithful women. And that doesn't mean that they don't make failures. It means, you know, kind of the old football strategy, fumble, fumble, score. When you get tackled, you fall forward. It's not that these people have, don't have wrong with them, but in the clutch that they will be there. And so he asked him to come alongside and to know who those are called. And, and you know, you can smell a faithful woman or man. You really can. There was a saying among the Muslims that Allah gave to Muhammad first the Quran and next the Arabian horse. There was his ability of the Arabian horse to be able to conquer at that time the known world. And by the way, Islam spread much faster than even Christianity, and Christianity exploded, mostly because they'd on the backs of these horses, these great riders. And they would take these Arabian horses and they would train them to stop or to go according to the trumpet sound before going into battle. And then they would put them in these pens and not give them water for days. And they would have in front of a running creek or some water there. And they would open the pen and these stallions would come running out, racing for the water. And when they blew the trumpet, the ones that dug in and stopped, even though they had this incredible thirst, were used. Ecclesia, the Greek word means for the church, the called out ones. We're the ones, even though we love to do fun things, we love to do that, that when the call of God says stop, that we come and we listen to a different voice. And that was Paul is telling to Timothy to continue on. He goes on and he says over in, look at verse 9 in the fourth chapter. These are some of the more painful words sometimes you hear. And by the way, why would, because Luke is with Paul, and Luke writes Luke in Acts. By the way, he writes more words than, in, than even Paul will write in the New Testament. That's how large the gospel is. Why didn't Luke write a third? Why didn't he make a trilogy? Why didn't he tell us? Why does he leave Paul under house arrest in Rome when he writes there? 
I think because Luke is making a statement that Paul doesn't need freedom in the sense of political freedom to be able to be used of God and to move ahead. What chains us down doesn't have to hold us back. Freedom has little to do with our mobility. It has everything to do with our head and our heart. And Paul in the middle of these jails is more free than the Roman guards that are walking around overseeing him. And sometimes God will, in our own life, allow things to come in. And sometimes it looks like we're held back. I mean, Abraham, remember, he sends him out, and it could be that he was confined, not knowing where he was. In Egypt, they're literally enslaved. David is the least of his family, and his family is the least of all the tribes of Israel. God loves doing this. Takes him into exile. Sends Nehemiah back, a little Jewish teen at her prayers by the name of Mary, who is a virgin that Christ will be born takes this ragtag group of people called the disciples, takes you and me. God loves using. You can always be too big for God. You can never be too small or too short. Either one. Either one. (laughs) When we're so big and we're so powerful, God says, I can't use you anymore. Because whatever I do, you're going to try to help me out, and I don't like your help. But when we're just down and out, we say, Lord, you're going to have to do this. When he goes, finally... Now I can do this. And Bel Air is a church. One of the beauties that we have of being connected together in the Presbyterian system is there's actually a way to think this thing through for the next chapter and to help out. And there's some great people, as I said already, saying, hey, I told you. And it's happened every week since I have announced that I was leaving 10 weeks ago. Some pastor called and said, hey, I'm praying for you. Do you have a committee yet that's receiving resumes? Uh, told me, I'm not even dead yet. Just chill out here a little bit. But Paul did not deserve at the end of his life to be where he is. Verse 9, fourth chapter, Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Aren't these sad words? Only Luke is with me. And then these remarkable words. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he's useful in my ministry. Remember Mark and Paul had such a falling out from the first missionary journey that literally they split ways. And when Paul's on death row, he said, Mark is the only guy in the clutch that'll come to me. Be very careful always in your relationships. Tie off, don't tear off, because you have no idea how the Lord might later on have that person be used in your life. And so he writes, Demas in love with the world. Remember Demas he addressed twice in two other letters. Timothy greets you. Titus greets you. Demas greets you. He was one of the inner ring of Paul. And it's not that Demas has left Paul. Paul's alone now. Paul is a lightning rod at best, a dung magnet at worst. You hang around this guy, you get beat or you get killed. And so the church in Paul's retirement party, you know what it was? Back off. He's on his own. He's on his own. And it's not that Demas has left Paul. It's that he's left the faith. It got so hard. And it was so tempting to follow the world. And we all have pressures to do that. It might be the approval of somebody sitting around the committee table with us that we make a decision. It might be we're tempted financially to cut the corners on something we know isn't right. I told you the woman called up the Presbyterian church and said, the pastor answered and she said, I, I love my dog and my dog died can we do a funeral for my dog? And 
pastor said, oh, we know that the Lord loves pets and things, but we don't do funerals for dogs. And she said, well, what do I do with this $10,000 honorarium? He said, you didn't tell me it was a Presbyterian dog. (laughs) And all of us have these temptations and these trials at time. And Demas in love with the world, deserted. Not that Demas played around in the money. He left the faith. And my brothers and sisters, always at some point, next week we're going to be doing the in-gathering. And at some point, Paul says, I am a libation being poured out upon the altar of your success to keep our values what are God's values. Then he goes on and says, I've sent Tychicus to Ephesus. When you come... Bring the cloak that I left with carpets, Troas, and the books and above all the parchments. He says, bring my coat, because he's freezing. And this is a wild thing. It's not, there's no such thing as books then. The codex hadn't been invented yet. Sefer's the Hebrew in the sense of my scroll. The scrolls are like the Talmud, but the parchments are the scriptures. He's never going to preach another sermon in his life. And he says, bring those, I need to have those. He's always growing. To the moment he is killed, he's growing. And he's also fortifying himself for the trial in front of him. And if the apostle Paul says, I can't do this without bathing my mind in scripture and prayer and friends, we're crazy when we cut that off in our life. But he also says, look, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him back for his deeds. You be aware of him, for he strongly opposed our message. Alexander probably testified against Paul Timothy, there are people out there that have such needs, they're going to stop the mission. He didn't say, Timothy, you go get them, go do vengeance. He said, just be aware of them. And the good thing about our system and our form of government, because we don't want to have one person alone making decisions, but democracy, which really a lot of the founding fathers was formed off of the Presbyterian Church in Scotland, the idea of connectionalism together. The good things about committees is you get to decide a lot of of input. And also it's kind of a division of labor. The bad thing is, is the committees, you can very often get people that have such issues in their own life, in their own families or their own marketplace, they can be working it out through the church. And it's happening, certainly you see here in this book with what Paul's telling to Timothy. Timothy, beware of this guy. Doesn't say hate him, doesn't say run him out, love him, but just be heads up. Verse 16, at my first defense, no one came to my support, all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. Now, he's not being just a pastor here. He's writing to Timothy. He's saying, everybody deserted me. Forgive them, Timothy. Forgive them. They don't have the ability to stand in front of the wealth and the fear of Nero in the emperor's court. And to stand there in chains, all the other Christians went, we'll be praying for you, brother. You know, in our own relationships, sometimes it's easy to look at things wrongly. I had a guy tell me, he said, I just don't have any luck in marriage. My first wife left me and my second one won't. (laughs) Sometimes you say, Lord, how come I got these friends? How come I have this church? How come I have this situation? And Paul's telling Timothy, Timothy... Even the people that let you down, you keep loving them and you keep pushing forward. Keep your eyes focused. Be faithful and the fruit will come. But the Lord stood by me and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and save me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. 
Now, some people thought that Paul was put in the arena of the lion. First of all, there were no Christians that were ever killed in the Colosseum because they weren't worth the show. That was for the gladiators. That was the expensive venue. Christians were killed in the smaller venues like a warm-up act before the gladiators, uh, all the thousands upon thousands that were being slaughtered. I don't think it's... The lion is the sign of imperial Rome besides the eagle. It was Nero's sign. I think he stood before Nero the first time and Nero didn't kill him. But he sent him back to prison. And he wrote to Timothy and he said, Timothy, I stood there once. God got me through that and God will get us through this. Greek Prisca and Aquila in the household of Nesphorus. Erastus remained in Corinth. Prometheus, I left ill in Miletus. Do your best to come to me before winter. Do your best to come to me before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you as do Prudence and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers and sisters. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Timothy, come before winter. There are times that you can do things and you don't just, like I said, go sailing you catch a ride on one of these great grain ships of Rome, they don't sell in the winter. The winds aren't right. And if he doesn't get there in time, he's not going to be able to hold his Timothy, who he loves, and impart more wisdom because he knows he's going to be executed. When I think of the harvest that we have done with Bel Air, I mean God's faithfulness. When I think that 11 and a half years ago in June of 2001, I gave him my candidating sermon here, I think since then, by God's goodness and an incredible pastoral staff that you have, that over a thousand people have been added. You know, we burned our mortgage in here. Do you remember that? Any of you have been around? We had a $3 million debt. We burned it so we could go into real debt. But with that real debt provided were these unbelievable facilities. We don't even need locks on these things over here. They are used so much. We used to have to do wedding receptions out in the parking lot. No kidding. And we see what you have raised over $75 million for the work of God. I've been here. $10 million you have given to missions. I mean, that's an amazing statement. In really tough financial times, when you take a look and think, not just the institutional numbers, but the stock value of relationships we have. I had someone say that there's a weaving of the fabric of friendship here. One of my great joys was a month ago, we were filming with the other pastors from the other churches for our Lenten DVD series. And this has never happened before, and, and I watched them, and I wasn't it because I'm not going to be here at Lent, watching them film. I was going to walk in front kind of like Alfred Hitchcock for a little cameo shot, but um, <laughs> some of you can explain to the others who Alfred Hitchcock was later, but uh, he looked kind of like me. But as you take a look at the things that God has done connecting the, down at the Hollywood Bowl, and thank you for the emails. I can't believe how many of you never told us the reason you came to Bel Air was from the Hollywood Bowl. And to be able to have eight to 13,000 people, depending on the year that we were there. Nokia, we had 35 different churches together downtown to celebrate Christmas. Our worship field trips, our sharing together, our sense of I had 12 family camps sharing together, getting away. Imagine LA, we're now a couple of the mosques as well as the synagogues and churches working together to get these kids who are adopted off the street. And one of the things that's great about you, I had a, I won't say who, but he's really important part of the General Assembly, say Bel Air might be one of the most loving evangelical churches in the denomination. I said, well, what does that mean? He said, well, you're really conservative, but you're not in a bad mood. (laughs) I said, you obviously don't know Bel Air. But then as we were 
sharing, to be able to, in that, that sense, to yeah, stand for what's right, but to know that there's a bigger thing at stake. Come before winter, Tim. Come here. Don't put it off. For 30 years, Paul has walked these roads. He has been beaten, rejected, abandoned, lied about, alone. And now in his very clutch, he will, as they say, walk up before Nero. We don't have any from scripture of this happen. We know that he was executed. Tradition tells us he couldn't be crucified because he was a Roman citizen. Peter had already been crucified and tradition says he said, crucify me upside down. I'm not worthy to die as Jesus. And Nero did this. Nero at first thought the Christians were nothing. But he found a way to appease some of the religious leadership back in Jerusalem. So he unleashed his, uh, unleashed his wrath on the Christians and he's killing them right and left. Tradition says that Paul came walking up and stood before him, this beat-up old Jewish rabbi, scarred beyond recognition. Tradition says that Nero says, I will kill you and your memory and the memory of this Nazarene forever today. He was taken out, and within the flash of a sword... Paul was in glory. A later historian, thinking of the power of Rome, the wealth of Rome, and this little group of lovers of Jesus. And they would say that the day would come when we call our dogs Nero and our sons Paul. Like they say, work like you don't need the money. Love like you've never been hurt. Dance like nobody's watching. Act like you're going to live forever. Act like you have been completely forgiven, because you and I have. Bel Air, we have done it. By God's grace, this good ship has gone through so many storms. We have buried our loved ones in doing memorials here in tears and watched marriages fall apart. And yet, because of you, that coming alongside each other, going on to the next chapters... We have shared together in celebrating weddings. Do you know this sanctuary? you know the best time is when nobody's in it? And that's when I come over. By the way, that's when I give my best sermons. You should be here sometime. But, and I still like to walk around and pray. It's here. When we came here, I still had a daughter who was a sophomore in high school. And I did her wedding here. I've been able to baptize my three grandkids here. And you and I... When I think of you and Carolyn, we were talking about how much, and this is not pastoral pumping sunshine at you, how many of you we love. We love 83% of you. We figured out that we were out there. And the other 17, eh. Uh, but when I think the honor that you have given us, the privilege that you have given us, L.A. is not the greatest city for Christ, but a lot of people have the vision. That's why I'm moving to Barstow, so I can take that city on instead. But I feel called by God to start this new kind of school to help other pastors and clergy to be able to catch this vision and to move ahead. And I will always in my life say, there was a time. There was a time. And it will be about you. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Let's pray.
God Almighty, we thank you that you have allowed us to be able to come to this place in life where we have journeyed together these many different, many times, Lord. We have cried together, we have fought together, we have laughed together, we have celebrated. Thank you, God, that we have these periods of walking together. But I thank you, Lord, at the end of the journey that we have friends that will literally last forever and ever. God, I thank you for the help of the Presbyterian. I thank you, God, for the next man or woman that is out there that right now you are laying dreams on them of saying, I don't know why, but I think I need to look at Bel Air Presbyterian. And Lord, it's going to be a leader that's going to lead this place to incredible heights. This place is so positioned by your goodness, God, and you love them so much you gave your only son. And so, Lord, we come before you and we thank you and we praise you. And we thank you that someday that when we are all gathered together and we look back and more real than this moment right now, that we'll have stories, stories of wonderful people, people that were redeemed and lost, people that were healed, and all the credit will go to your son. To the glory of the risen Christ, I pray. He gets answers. Amen. Thank you, Bel Air.